Good morning, church. It's good to see your faces this morning. Um, As I was preparing this week, uh, later on in the week, I was uh, reading uh, study Bible, you know, kind of checking my work, and and uh, the the study Bible author uh, said what has been obvious to me all week. He said, "This text, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one to twelve, is the hardest passage in Second Thessalonians, and maybe in all of Paul's writings." And I'm like, "I know. Thank you. I've been working on it all week." And um, so I would put this in maybe like the top five, top three hardest sermons to prepare. And uh, so I've been trying to prepare my heart for this moment. And uh, I'm trusting the Lord to meet us as his words unpacked. And part of the reason why it's so hard is <coughs> there's just a number of things that the apostle and these other missionaries, uh, Silas and Timothy, they were teaching the Thessalonians when they were with them. And we keep getting abbreviated versions of it here. And so we're kind of having to read between the lines, and which means there's some ambiguity on a number of important pieces in the text say important because they, they factor largely into the passage. But one thing that's regularly encouraging to me as I study my Bible is that the more I press into a text, especially hard ones, um, the more I find that the main point, the main thing that God's driving at is inescapably clear. And I think that that's true in the passage before us today. So let me pray And uh, as I pray, I'm going to express God's heart for for this passage, so you can listen and join your hearts with me. Father in heaven, I thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word, and I also thank you for the trial that it is, and how it doesn't just uh, change people, uh, it changes the preacher. And uh, so Lord, I thank you for the difficulty of the text and the ways that you have had to shape um, my own mind and heart through this, and I thank you that I get another opportunity after 11 years to see you show up again. And so I pray for your power this morning. Uh, I pray that your presence would be with us in a way that is uh, noticeable to every person in this room. And Lord, I pray for your children that none of us would be tossed to and fro on the ways of the sea, on every wind of doctrine, Lord, but that you would use your word to stabilize your people. I pray that this text, even though it has a way of shaking up thinking, I pray that it would also have a way of stabilizing our thinking. And so, Lord, care for your children through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, outline for... Uh, the text this morning <laughs> that I think will serve us well is you can think about this two points. Um, a confusing claim, and then we're going to be looking at verses one and two. There's a confusing claim that is made that Paul is addressing. And then there's a calming correction that's given in the rest of the text. And for such an intense passage, you wouldn't think it's that calming, but that's what it's designed to do. And so I wanted to bring that out in the outline. So a confusing claim and a calming correction. So look at the claim, and I'm just going to state it right up front. <laughs> the claim is this, that the day of the Lord has come. That the day of the Lord has already come. So this is, even in Paul's day, these Thessalonians, they're brand new, they're newer believers, and uh, they, uh, they have heard that the day of the Lord has come, and that is throwing them for a loop 
to put it mildly. So let's look at our text. <laughs> I'm going to read the first two verses and we'll unpack it. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, <coughs> either by a spirit or by a spoken word or by a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, do you see the claim there? To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He's writing them because they are. There has been a claim made to them that the day of the Lord has come, and it's having this effect on them, right? It's saying, it says to not be uh, <coughs> quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And so there is alarm. They're shaken in mind, which means that there's confusion. They're kind of disoriented a little bit. And so Paul is wanting to address this. They are becoming spiritually unstable because of this claim that has been made in regards to the end times, in regards to the timing of the Lord Jesus's return. They're believing that he's already come and that is, yeah, messing them up. And how did they <coughs> learn this? Well, we're not exactly sure, but the Apostle Paul's taken a few stabs at it when he talks about some of these means that they're getting this claim brought to bear on them. He says, um, verse two, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter <coughs> seeming to be from us. And so you can say, um, a spirit, maybe a prophetic word, a word that someone's claiming to be from God, right? Claiming to have the authority of God. A spoken word, maybe in the form of <coughs> teaching that's influential, um, or a letter seeming to be from him. And so kind of a forgery, a letter that's claiming to be from Paul, Silas, or Timothy to them in order to bring forth this claim that the day of the Lord has come. And so however they're getting it, <coughs> they needed to be more watchful, <coughs> but it's obviously shaking them up. And it reminds me of a few passages, one from 1 John 4, 1 that says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Or Paul himself said it in 1 Thessalonians 5.20, you might remember this. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Or as Pastor Ben put it when he preached on that text, to not be hardened or hoodwinked, right? I liked that, Ben. It's a good line. Um, so um, this, is, this is the claim that's being made, that the day of the Lord has come. And one of the things, you know, I've read this text so many times, um, even before this week. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the thing that makes me kind of scratch my head is like, okay, they really believe that the Lord has come? All right? Like this, this always just seemed kind of jarring to me. What, what made them <coughs> think that, you know? Um, especially with all that they've already been taught. And we know from 1 Thessalonians, they've been taught quite a bit on the topic. And so I think there is a little bit of a mild rebuke here in some of the language when he says things like, <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm coughing a lot. You guys are going to have to bear with me. If someone has a cough drop, I might take it. Anybody? Any takers? Want to toss one up here? This is for your all sake. So you don't have to listen to that all the time. Thank you, sister. I appreciate that. The water's not going to do it today. Appreciate it. Okay, so um, 
So he kind of, I think, gives a mild rebuke. If you look at uh, verse 2, and he says, not to be quickly shaken. You know, they're going to hear things, but they're being quickly shaken. And then in verse 5, he says, do, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And so he's, he's talked to them about these things. He's given them categories for this. Um, in a sense, they should be equipped to be able to not be alarmed or easily shaken by these things, and they should know better that the Lord <coughs> has not come. Um, but I think part of what's going on here, and it's hard to say exactly, but um, I think part of what's happening, you know, in light of all that's been taught um, <coughs> to them, I think part of what they might be struggling with is they might be seeing the day of the Lord, which can biblically be somewhat of a flexible category. Um, talking about that climactic event of Jesus splitting the skies, coming back, um, <coughs> and, and to judge and to, live, to deliver. But um, in their minds, you know, they can be recognizing that there's, there's one main event, but there's also, it's one way to think about the day of the Lord too, is multiple events, like kind of in a complex together. And so they're thinking maybe <coughs> about the suffering that they're experiencing. And they're thinking, okay, Jesus is coming shortly after tribulation begins. And they're going, I'm experiencing tribulation and their suffering feels really intense. And so they're connecting the return of the Lord to the suffering they're experiencing. The more intense it gets, the more that gap closes in their minds. And then they have some teaching coming in through these different avenues that are emphasizing that he's come. And so it's starting to bring confusion in them. That's my guess of what's happening here. And so this intense affliction on the heels of an imminent return, they're thinking Christ is coming so soon, is um, <clears throat> in a sense making it feel like bone on bone. <laughs> it's starting to be painful for them. And, um, and so what Paul's wanting to do in a sense is, you know how like vertebrae is like without the discs, you know, it's like bone on bone, it can be so painful. Um, Paul's wanting to like reassert, insert the discs, right? He's wanting to put a spacer in there that is going to, he's not going to make it up, but he's going to remind them of things he's already told them. The biblical spacer that's meant to be there to help them think about the timing of the Lord's return, he's going to reinsert it for them and it's meant to be helpful. It's meant to have a calming effect and that leads us to <coughs> our second point. So a confusing claim, which is the day of the Lord has come, and now a calming correction. Okay, the claim, a day has come. The correction is, no, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. The day of the Lord hasn't come. There's two things that have to happen first, and that's really uh, brings out the outline for the rest of the text in many ways. Let's read verse three. What are the two things that have to happen first? These are these biblical spacers. <clears throat> Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So what has to happen first? The rebellion has to happen and the man of lawlessness has to be revealed. The rebellion and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Those two things have to happen first. <laughs> so, so Paul's putting that buffer in there, that spacer in there, going between the coming of the Lord and the afflictions you're experiencing, you need to know that there's going to be some things that are going to happen. This is meant to relax them a little bit. Reminds me of Jesus' words in Mark 13. 
verse 7. Mark 13, verse 7, Jesus says this, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Okay? So there's some signs that will tell you that the end is not yet. So what's the rebellion? Um, there's different translations. <clears throat> so ESV takes it as a, the rebellion. It could be a falling away or apostasy. That's what the Greek word sounds like there where people fall away from the faith. The idea, the basic idea of the rebellion is, is, that, is of abandoning or moving away from a previously held position. So they're there, but they're moving away from that in a negative way. And um, we don't know. This is one of those hard things about this text. And I think part of being responsible in preaching a text or teaching from the Bible is that we have to know our limitations. If the scripture, the scripture only says so much about it, that's about how much I should say about it. Um, so the rebellion talks, um, it's hard to know the nature of the rebellion. This is about what it says about it. Um, is it political in nature? Is it, is it religious in nature? Is it a combination of both? Like, is this, is this people that are professed Christians falling away from the faith at this time? Um, (coughs) it could be (coughs) a combination of things. And often those two things go hand in hand, right? Because the way the, things are morally in the hearts of the majority. It starts to affect things politically quite a bit. And so, um, but it's hard to know the nature of the rebellion um, or who exactly is leading it. But I think we could probably by the end here put a few more pieces together, but I'll leave it there um, for now. <coughs> we don't, <coughs> and, uh, um, and so there's going to be this falling away of some kind and maybe an, uh, echo in Jesus' teaching. Look at Matthew 24, 24. Let me read this to us. Matthew 24, 24. Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead away, if possible, even the elect. And so this, this falling away may include a lot of people who are professing. A lot of people who are professing. <clears throat> but it seems to be clearly implied that this is going to be extraordinary and it's going to be widespread, okay? There's a sense in which you're like, the rebellion's happening right now. I think it's going to be more intense than what we experience right now with people falling, falling away. And so, um, <clears throat> so the rebellion has to happen first, but so does the revelation of the man of lawlessness. And this takes up the bulk of the passage, and what I want to do is we want to say, okay, who, who's this man of lawlessness? What's he like? Um, <clears throat> what do we know about him? So I'm going to take you through the text, and we're going to make observations from the text so that we can see it uh, for ourselves, what we know about the man of lawlessness, because this is kind of a unique title here, and so we need to fill it in from the passage, um, not from our own imaginations. <clears throat> so let's look to see what it <laughs> says. First thing that it says is this. Um, his arrival, his revealing, will precede Jesus' second coming, okay? Simple stuff. Not trying to be fancy, but we just know this about him. When he arrives, we know that he's going to arrive before the second coming of Christ. That's what it says in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. <clears throat> okay, second, he's also referred to as <clears throat> the son of destruction. The son of destruction. Um, interestingly, similar ideas used to describe Judas Iscariot, right? 
One who's destined for uh, destruction. So too, this man of lawlessness, whoever he is, is destined for destruction. What else do we know about him? Well, we know that he vies for God-like supremacy over all other competition, okay? He fights for God-like supremacy. He wants to be above everybody. So let's look there in verse four. He's one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That kind of leads me to my next point. <coughs> Not only does he vie for God-like supremacy and exalting himself, he's exceedingly arrogant and self-exalting in his claim for divinity, which is kind of interesting when you think about it historically, because <coughs> not long before this letter is even written, there was things happening historically, especially when it came to uh, leaders and rulers of the day doing things in the temple of God in order to exalt themselves. And so freshly in people's mind could have been Antiochus IV, um, the Roman general, Pompey, uh, the Roman emperor, um, Caligula, all three of those were all ones that to one degree or another either came into the temple and desecrated it in some way or intended to in some way, were exalting themselves in some way. And so you have some of these historical examples and it's almost just like with those things fresh in people's minds, it's going to make them think that all of that kind of high-handed self-exaltation is going to climax in a person. And as we'll probably see later, <coughs> it's not just, you know, these few figures that did stupid stuff. Uh, it's all people and all pride and all self-exaltation and all those kinds of things. It's like all of it being channeled into one person, being consecrated into, concentrated into one person. This is what the man of lawlessness is like. <coughs> Here's another observation. He's currently held back by... A restrainer, which is uh, one, another difficult thing about this passage is it talks about a restrainer in verse 6. So let me read that for us. <clears throat> and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So a couple of things to bring in there. One, we can just say um, this man of lawlessness is being restrained currently. Okay? Um, but... We don't know who's restraining him. It's really, and what makes it even more complex is that between two verses, he's, this restrainer is described in really impersonal terms, like a force, and then he's described in personal terms, like a person. So you're like, oh, what is it? And that leads to all kinds of different possibilities um, on, on who it could be. <laughs> like even think of something like, could it be like the, the Roman Empire, you know? because uh, of its influence and strength. And, and you could say, well, it's impersonal. It's like a force, but then you have like the emperor that stands at the head of it. So it's more personal. It can kind of be both. But that's just one out of many examples of who the, who the restrainer <laughs> could possibly be. But I can tell you this, if it was really, really, really important for us to know, it would be right there in the text. So what's important for us to know is that he's being restrained at the moment, and um, so we walk away with that clarity. Okay, he's being restrained. Um, <clears throat> here's another observation. 
the spirit of lawlessness, you can say the spirit of lawlessness that, <clears throat> that um, so characterizes the man of lawlessness, the spirit of lawlessness um, is concentrated, as I mentioned a moment ago, in this one person. Um, <clears throat> but, but it's interesting that it's not, so he's being restrained right now, but this very stuff that he's made out of is happening all the time. Okay? That's what's being described <clears throat> next in the passage for it says in verse seven, for the mystery of lawlessness, that's what I mean by same stuff, right? the same opposition to God, the same kind of heart that wants to push against the law of God and the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that same kind of spirit that loves unrighteousness instead of righteousness and loves sin more than God, that same spirit, that mystery of lostness is already at work, okay? It's already at work. And uh, this is where you start to get maybe a little bit more <coughs> clarity as you compare it to, for example, the way the, the Antichrist is described in other passages. Because um, you have this kind of concentration of power, you know, in, in this, this culmination of all that is wicked and rebellious against God. And then you have the very spirit of it expressed, even apart from the person. And uh, so, for example, in 1 John 2, verse 18, it says, Children, <clears throat> it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. Do you see that? So, so the ant, there's like the Antichrist, and then there's Antichrist. You could say there's the Antichrist, and then there's the spirit of the Antichrist that already pervades so much of the world in which we live. We see some of it at work. In 1 John 4, verse 3, it says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Okay, so I'm just trying to parallel here with the Antichrist, this figure, the man of lawless. They may be the same. At the very least, they're cut from the same cloth. Very likely the same. Um, but that idea of the person and all the wickedness he represents and will bring in his time, um, but also that same kind of influence happening already, even now. And um, so let's look at another one. What's another observation we can make? <coughs> well, just as we said that he is being held back or restrained, the, also t the time is going to come when he's going to be released or unleashed. And it's going to happen at the proper time, and it's going to happen, it seems here, for a short time. Okay, so let's look at verses 6 and 7. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only, we, uh, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Okay, so he's going to restrain him, and then he's going to be put out of the way, whoever that restrainer is, and then all of a sudden the lawless one, into verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Now, <clears throat> what's going to come of him? We also have a lot of clarity on that. Look at the next verse. It happens so quick. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah. 
we know how this story ends. And I think it's helpful just to pause for a moment here and go, everything that we have learned about this figure up to this point, and then what we're going to learn about him in the next few observations, like this is just, this is no one to mess around with in a sense, you know, like this is the climactic figure of evil, right? And power we're going to see. But Jesus comes with the breath of his mouth. He's done. Over. In a moment like that. You know, sometimes I think we fall into like dualistic thinking. We think this is a great battle between good and evil. We're kind of waiting to see how it's all going to play out. Does this sound like God's wondering how it's going to play out? With the breath of his mouth. In other words, with ease. He is going to destroy this great deceiver of souls. And uh, <clears throat> do you remember why Jesus was, what, it, what his purpose was in his coming? He's coming and he wants to be glorified and magnified, right? <clears throat> or he wants to be <clears throat> magnified and marveled at. Do you think that that moment of him taking down the man of lawlessness is going to add to his glorification in that moment? It's going to be awesome because everybody's going to know how intense it is to have the man of lawlessness in the world and all the havoc he is wreaking, you know, wreaking. And, um, and as believers, we're like, he's going to get his. And then the Lord spits, splits the skies and all of the things, he seems so unstoppable. And then boom, in a moment, he's put in his place eternally. So let's get, let's get to a few more <laughs> observations, Okay. Next observation is this. Satan's power is behind the powerful acts and ability to deceive. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Okay, so it's, it's, he's not Satan. It's a different entity, right? But it's by the power of Satan. So the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And so Satan's behind all of these powerful acts (coughs) and there are going to be many acts. People are going to be caught up in awe. He's the greatest counterfeit. You know, I think about how widespread this is going to be and it does just make you tremble because you could also make this observation that he will successfully and winsomely deceive unbelievers, which is by far the majority of the world. He's going to successfully deceive them. It says this in verse 10. And with all wicked deception, so after doing these signs and wonders or through by means of these signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. These ones are going to be <coughs> his, his target. And, um, and I just think about this. This, I mean, this is going to be the, the greatest deception in the history of the world. So that's stunning. We're talking about the scope of things right now. I mean, stop for a moment and think about how many of you have, I won't make you answer this, uh, how many of you have at least had attempts at being scammed? Like someone's tried to scam you. Come on, that's it? You guys have phones? Right? Some of you have been scammed, okay? Uh, Like, even in this room, how many people, like, there's been attempts? You all know people that have been scammed, right? Think about, I mean, it is, I mean, to say it's a billion-dollar enterprise, it doesn't do justice, right? 
I mean, just countless billions upon billions upon billions of dollars are made through the deception. And it's so crafty, isn't it? You get that email, like, oh, Amazon sending me something. No, they're not. No, that's not from UPS, right? This is a good little lesson here on like, be careful what you, text you get and what you respond to and don't click that link, right? But all that deception, raking in billions of dollars, deceiving people so widely right now, like you take all this deception and all the energy that goes into it and all of that is just meant to describe, like take all of it and concentrate it into one person and there you have this incredible and creative, powerful deceiver and he's extremely successful and he's bringing in billions of souls so <clears throat> he's going to be successful and the last observations I w- observation I want to make about him is this his actions as powerful as they are as you know widespread as they are as successful as they are His actions ultimately serve God's sovereign purposes of judgment. And that's what we read about in verses 11 and 12. So let me say that again. His actions serve God's sovereign purposes of judgment. He's going to do wicked in the world, but ultimately, (coughs) ultimately God is sovereign over that evil. Therefore, can we back up a little bit so you can get the logic? I'm going to go back to verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Can I read that one more time? They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. There is so much to think about there. But to be able to say, <coughs> God uses this evil in his sovereignty to bring about his judgment. It's a little bit like this. Because I think the way to misread that is to be like, oh, God causes these people to do that. Like, no, they're already, it's already in their hearts. They love unrighteousness. Their hearts already bent on these things. That's what's so scary about it, to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ because um, that, re- that rejection makes someone inherently susceptible to deception, right? There's only one other alternative. And it's not Christ, right? It's the world, the flesh, the devil. And so <clears throat> God is not having to make this happen to get in this position. Think about it this way. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? You get the idea, right? So who hardened his heart? Well, Pharaoh hardened his heart a thousand times, a million times, right? Before those, those moments, before those showdowns with Moses in the great hall representing God, right? He had hardened his heart so many times, but God confirmed that hardness, you know? What happens if you mold clay and you set it out in the sun? It gets hard, right? You leave it to yourself. God gave Pharaoh over to himself. It's a terrifying thing. You know, we think the world's generally civil in a lot of ways. If God were to pull back what he's restraining right now, then we would feel like it's a taste of hell. 
That's part of what hell is going to be like when he pulls back these restraints, right? Well, God is giving Pharaoh over to what he really wants, to all of his prideful self-exaltation and ambition. Well, God does this to people who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gives them over. And when the man of lawlessness comes, it's going to happen in a more ultimate way. But even now, it's happening in, in smaller but significant ways. For example, if you want to turn with me, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, but it might be helpful to read it in the context of what we're talking about right now. Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Just giving some fuller understanding to what it means that, um, <clears throat> that God is sovereign over this evil that is being committed here. When it says that God sends them a strong delusion, <clears throat> this is his way of giving them over. So I'm going to pick up, I'm actually going to read a, a fairly decent uh, sized chunk here. Romans uh, chapter 1, I'm going to pick up at verse 18. Romans 1, starting at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, that's what's happening in our text. People are rejecting the truth. They're suppressing the truth, right? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His world testifies of it, we're gonna see. For this, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those who are, that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men <coughs> and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I'm going to keep going. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Is that what we're dealing with in this text? since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Here's that phrase again. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
All of that to say, when people are in this state, which many of them are, most of the world is in this state right now. Rejecting God, living for their own passions and pleasures, not recognizing it, but they're marching to the drumbeat of Satan, right? Under his authority and power. They feel powerful, but he's glad to empower them on the road to destruction, thinking they know better than God and his word. Most of the world is in this position. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. Many are they who travel that road. (coughs) And so many, many, many people are there right now, and they are deceived. And there is a temporal judgment that comes when God gives people over to what they really want. And that's what's scary. Like the issue at the bottom of this passage in so many ways in terms of who's going to be deceived at the end of the day, it's going to come down to a love issue. It's going to come down to the heart. And that's the bad news for the world right now. And that's the bad news for some in this room right now. Is that you have a love problem that at bottom in your heart, you don't love Christ. You love the world and the things of the world. And those things are passing away. And what's being said in this text is there's influences that are deceiving you and keeping you blind to recognizing your need for a savior. And, and are continuing to encourage you to think that you know better than God. And if you are deceived now, just think what it's going to be when the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's what's scary is this deception feels intense even now. I can't imagine how much this is going to be heightened when the man of lawlessness is revealed. And I think it's going to get to a point where it's past the point of no return at that point. And so this is a very scary place to be. <clears throat> and uh, there's going to be a great weeding out of true and false, true believers and just mere professors of the faith, those who have actually empty religion and that shell worked for them for a while, but it's going to be found out on that day. And, and part of what's going to find out is there's going to be a great deception that's going to do some of the separating. And God in his sovereignty is going to confirm you in your hardness of heart like he did Pharaoh on that day. So these are scary realities that need to be taken <coughs> into account. They need to be thought about. Think about your own heart. Are you on this dangerous trajectory, deceived now, only to be more deceived later? Because there will come a point when you won't be able to turn back again. There'll be a point where you have swallowed it so hook, line, and sinker, so caught that you won't be able to turn back. And where will the blame be placed? In our passage, I think it's pretty clear where the blame will be placed because it is people who reject Christ, right? Who have pleasure in unrighteousness, who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. God will confirm you in that if you stay down that road, which is terrifying. So the question is, is like, will you today hear his voice and stop hardening your heart? Today is the day of salvation. The Lord is giving you a word because you go through your life, people get hard, more and more and more hardened. 
But I want to give you some hope. And the hope is this. Today, as of now, in this moment, it's not too late. It's not too late. The end of the end has not come. The man of lawlessness has not been revealed. The rebellion hasn't happened, but all the rumblings of it are already taking place. The spirit of it is already at work. And if it's at work in you this morning, my prayer is that a different spirit will be at work in you. That the Holy Spirit of God would give you eyes to see that you're on this trajectory of deception and rebellion and that you would see that God is willing to rescue in his son, Jesus Christ. And this is what's so beautiful. There is a man of lawlessness that is coming, but there's also a man of righteousness that is coming. The man of lawlessness exalts himself and uses his power to deceive and ensnare others. The man of righteousness comes and humbles himself taking the form of a servant. Even though he had equality with God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men like us. And he humbled himself in obedience to the point of death. Therefore, God, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is a man of righteousness that is willing to save people who have lived their entire lives deceived in loving unrighteousness. What mercy has come, and what mercy is embedded in this message of the gospel that we get to proclaim to people. There's widespread deception even now. And this is the only thing that can break the spell. And so if you're here this morning and you're starting to recognize the enchantment you've been under, may God wake you up. May you lay hold in faith to the man of righteousness and you will be saved. You will be saved. But make no mistake, there is no other way. And there is gonna come a time where it is too late. So don't refuse the good news of Jesus Christ. So what have we seen so far? There's this confusing claim that the day of the Lord has already come, right? Their minds are confused and perplexed about this. (coughs) Paul then writes this letter to give them this calming correction, right? To address the claim that the day of the Lord has come and say, no, it hasn't. (coughs) Correction. You know that it hasn't because two things have to happen first. The rebellion and the man of lawlessness need to be revealed. Now, it might be helpful just to step back and go, okay, is there a connection between the rebellion and the man of lawlessness? It's hard to say definitively from the text. But it does make sense, given that so many people are going to fall away. And it seems to be more religious in nature, like falling away from the truth um, and weeding out pretenders. It it seems to, to me that it's likely that the man of lawlessness is going to be the one leading this rebellion, spearheading this rebellion. Uh, he's really good at getting recruits. And uh, so that's my, my sense of how those two signs kind of fit together. Um, he's likely the instrument in the rebellion, um, spearheading the entire thing. Now, let's close with a few points of application. 
So <laughs> we've seen the claim, and then we've seen the comforting, correct, the calming correction. And again, the point was, is like, these things have to happen first, so don't freak out. Relax. Chill. Okay? Um, so here's the first application right in that vein. <clears throat> don't be alarmed, but be alert. Okay? Don't be alarmed, but be alert about the timing of your, lur- your, your, lur- <laughs> your Lord's return. <clears throat> Don't be alarmed, but be alert about the timing of your Lord's return. You know, if someone's an unbeliever, it's like, okay, be alarmed. Now's a good time, right? But if you're a believer, you don't need to be alarmed, right? It's the best day of your life. And the whole point of what we saw back in 1 Thessalonians was no one's going to miss it, right? No one's going to, everybody's going to see it. Just the way that believers are going to experience it is going to be awesome. Do you remember he took pains in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to explain <coughs> what's going to happen to people who are alive at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and those who were dead before the coming of Christ? And his whole point of arguing was that the Lord is going to make sure that every one of his people gets a front row seat to that reality. Like Jesus is coming to be magnified and marveled at. He's going to make sure that your heart is there and ready to be able to enjoy that moment. It's going to be a great reunion among believers um, (coughs) from all ages to be caught up together with believers and to be able to meet the Lord in the air, and this is the kicker, and to always be with the Lord. That's the heartbeat of the teaching on the end times, and we love that, and therefore we love his appearing. So don't don't be alarmed, but be alert, because in 1 Thessalonians 5, just one chapter after the one I just mentioned, He gives good instruction about the day of the Lord, saying you know that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night while people are going about their normal business, right? And they're saying, (coughs) there's peace and security. Then sun destruction comes upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, right? It's going to happen suddenly. And but his, his, even when he was teaching on the suddenness of the Lord's return, his application was not like panic, His application was, okay, be sober, right? Be sober-minded and watchful. This is is the main main thing that he wants us to walk away. Don't be alarmed, but be alert. Be sober. Remember that sermon I gave you, the kind of field sobriety test? Spiritual field sobriety test? You're like, what? I didn't, okay. (laughs) Yeah, to kind of test, like, are we awake? Are we sober? So that's applicable here, especially when there's gonna be widespread deception. Be awake. Be awake. You won't know the day or the hour, so don't listen to anybody that tells you that they know. The Bible's so clear on this point. Um, that's often how people get shaken, is they believe things that are so contrary to clear teachings in Scripture, like we don't know the day or the hour. Um, some things will take place first that will be obvious, like the rebellion and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. <laughs> or you could probably say the Antichrist. Right? These things are going to be obvious, okay? To any Christians that's walking around, you know, with their eyes open and a heart bent on following Jesus, it's going to be okay. It's going to be intense, but it's going to be okay. Some things are going to happen that are going to be obvious at the end to usher in the coming of the Lord. There's going to be some things <laughs> that are happening even now in these days. And make no mistake, sometimes I hear people talk like, are we in the last days? It's like, 
Of course we are. It's, one of the, it's so clear in the Bible that we're in the last days. It's just that that category is a very pregnant category, right? It's spanning the comings, the first coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so clear. I can pull to so many texts that say, we are in these last days. But <laughs> the last day of the last days, that's another part of the discussion, right? And so, in other words, <coughs> don't be alarmed, but be alert. The second thing is this. Be aware of the kind of teaching that you are drinking, okay? We have so much access to so many types of teaching, online especially, right? And there are so many that, oh, bless your heart, man. I love these kids. Wow. Thank you, buddy. Um, you could tell I needed it. <laughs> um, people are, we just have so many opportunities to get teaching, and there's few things that tickle the fancy of Christians more than being told speculative things about what's going to happen at the end. I mean, this, this is really what gets a lot of people's juices flowing. And I get it. Like, we should press into the details of Scripture, try to understand it. But I am wanting to model for you this morning even a responsible understanding of a passage like this where you go, okay, where does the Scripture stop short? Like, of saying more, that's where we stop short. Don't spend our time waxing eloquent about speculative things that are not clear in Scripture. Spend your time being vigilant about the things that you see clearly in Scripture. And that is where the New Testament puts the emphasis. And I'll argue that with anybody. It puts the emphasis on being vigilant, being watchful, and looking forward to love in your Lord's appearing. You know? And using that to encourage and build one another up. That was the refrain in 1 Thessalonians when he got done t- teaching on sections on the end times. And so... Be careful what kind of teaching that you're drinking because true end-time teaching is meant to have a good effect on you. For example, it's meant to make you confident, not an alarmist weirdo. It's meant to make you confident, okay, to know my Lord's coming back. There's a buffer there. I'm not panicked. I'm not alarmed. I know some of the things to look for. I know what I should be doing, right? If anything, be a little alarmed for other people, okay? but not you losing your own stability. And so it should have a stabilizing effect. Justice is going to be served. You're going to, have, you're going to be made new. You're going to be made whole. I mean, there's so many things to look forward to. Confident should be encouraging, not just for your own heart, but a source of encouragement that you give to other brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, um, good teaching is going to help you be sober, you know, to live a godly life, a holy life. In this present age where you're waiting for the appearing of your blessed hope, the appearing of our great of the glory the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But bad end times teaching can have a bad effect. Right? So that's why I'm warning you, be careful about what you're drinking. Um, the bad effects of end time teaching, I see pride. I think it makes super arrogant people. And they tend to look down their noses on other people because they have some secret knowledge, but the reality is it's speculative. The scriptures don't actually teach it. It's just that they're putting a dot, like where I would stop and go, maybe, they go, absolutely. And they, and they take every symbol and then they, they can just, you know, just perfectly parse it. And I go, I'm all for pressing into the details and trying to understand what things are and what things may symbolize. But I say, have a humility when you do it. Recognize when you're speculating and what you're pointed to something concrete in the text that can be verifiably proved. Like everything we said about the man of lawlessness today. We don't have to speculate about it. This is what we... Um, so bad teaching on the end times, it, it creates pride in people, which leads to disunity. 
and dissension. Right? I know something that you don't know. I, I thought that you're supposed to use the teaching of the end time to actually build up the body of Christ. Right? Because that's what the apostle says. Um, another thing that it does is it creates isolation. People that aren't willing to speculate with them, they'll start to, they'll start to distance themselves from other Christians that don't believe the exact same thing in all of those details. And I'd say that's a massive mistake. And I think it's demonic. That's what I think about that. Um, and I think that it's hurting a lot of churches. You know, there are core things about the end times that we should believe, right? As Christians, if you don't believe it, you're not a Christian, right? But there are peripheral things that are way less clear in Scripture that we can lovingly debate, and, um, and we can still have unity in Christ. So I want you to hear that from the pulpit with the authority of God this morning. I really believe that this is, this is something that that we'll face as a church and something we have to be wise about. We need to be careful what kind of teaching because it starts affecting our hearts and one thing it starts to do is starts to cool off our love for others. It starts to make us distance ourselves and be selfish and prideful and makes us fixate on the speculative instead of appreciating what is concrete and clear in scripture, which is where the apostles tell us to live in that place. So a final point of application is this. Loving the truth is your best protection. Loving the truth is your best protection. What makes an unbeliever so vulnerable to the man of lawlessness and even the deception even in our day before he comes? It's that they love the wrong things. They love the wrong things. And so when we love the wrong things, it starts to make us way more susceptible to demonic influences in our lives. And so I want to give this word uh, to say, know the truth and love the truth. And I'm saying both of those. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to love it. Some of you are well taught and you're like, I read my Bible and I study a lot and you know a lot of things and you give a lot of answers, but do you love it? Because I'm making the point here that it's not just knowing the truth, it's loving the truth. That is the great protection of the heart. When we love the right things, so we want to check our hearts. We want to take pleasure in righteousness, not unrighteousness. <clears throat> Makes me think of Proverbs 4, 6. I'm talking about wisdom and it says, do not forsake her and she will love you. Or, do not forsake her and she will guard you. Uh, love her and she will watch over you. That idea of like, there's a protection in loving wisdom. There's a protection in loving truth. And I want all of us to be in that protection. <clears throat> and there's a warning here. Mere moralism. Going through the motions in a heartless way, even if it, if it you know, convinces others, mere moralism is a paper shield against such powerful deception that is coming our way. And even as that worked in our day. So if you're just kind of going through the hoops and you don't really like, you have affection for Jesus Christ and his word. I'm telling you, if you don't, it's dangerous. And so cultivate a love for him. If you're saying, my heart is cold even today, I'm saying, talk to him about it. That's part of living the Christian life is recognizing when you get a coldness of heart, you don't just keep going in that direction. You stop, you ask, you confess it to the Lord. You talk to him about it, ask him to change you. Ask him to warm your heart, spend extra time in the word and prayer and get people around you whose hearts are warmer than yours. It will help you a lot, but don't stay cold. I get those ways too, but don't stay cold. Talk to the Lord about it. Bring it to him. 
Love the real thing is the best way to see through counterfeits. Love the real thing. And then you'll be able to see through the counterfeits. Your heart will know better and not just your head. And then we'll be able to say with the Apostle Paul, henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, thank you for sustaining me through this sermon. Thank you for these dear saints that gave me cough drops. Thank you for Thank you that I can say, Lord, that, that the majority, the strong, strong majority in this room know the truth and believe in you. And we don't have to be alarmed on that day, Lord, <laughs> or this day. Thank you, Lord, that we can walk with peace and confidence and hope and joy, that we can love the appearing. And Lord, we know we're gonna love the appearing because we love Jesus right now. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters, knowing full well in this fallen world how hard it is to fight the battle for the heart. God, I pray for those who just feel cool this morning, feel cold. God, I pray that you would warm their hearts. Help them sense your love. Help them sense, even in this text, your fatherly care for them, wanting them to be protected against deception. Lord, would you warm their hearts thinking about what Christ has done for them, how his blood was shed, the life he lived, Lord, I pray that you would win their awe and turn it away from the things of the world. Lord, please help your people stay warm. Keep your people faithful to the end. And if there's ways that they're loving the wrong things, oh Lord, I pray that you would grant them grace to turn away from those things, even today, (laughs) to confess them to you, (laughs) to trust your grace and forgiveness and to get up again (coughs) and follow you. And Lord, I pray for those who are lost this morning, sobered fresh by this text, knowing the level of deception that's gonna come and how you're gonna confirm people in it. Lord, I pray. I pray, Lord, that you'd help people that are on the fence right now to not harden their hearts, but to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. Thank you that nothing's impossible with you. You will melt the heart of stone, Lord. Would you do it again this morning? And I pray that as we turn to you and recognize how much we need you, Lord, to walk in these evil days, I pray, Lord, that we would be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And thank you, Lord, that you're coming and that we look forward to that day. (laughs) In Jesus' name, amen.